discussions of an arcade addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 46 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, let's see, only about, what, two weeks have gone by since I recorded episode 45. I just put it out a couple of days ago, and now it's immediately time to turn around and get 46 out so that I can talk about the Chicago trip, which of course starts with episode 47. I've got that done, I've got episode 48 done, I'm working on 49, and... Um, it should be, 50 and 51 should be pretty easy to do, maybe, possibly, <laughs> you never know. Um, I realized that before actually sitting down and working on these episodes pertaining to my trip to Chicago, I had to sort of kind of put everything in perspective, not be a prisoner of the moment, although you're going to probably see that in my On the Road segments because that's a knee-jerk, not knee-jerk, but just a reaction in the moment when I'm going to and leaving a certain place. So, you know, you know I'll leave it to you guys to judge, you know, whether it was good or not. Um, all I can do is just the best I can and just to be honest with you guys. And that's just how it's going to be. Uh, let's see, gaming-wise, not too much going on still. Um... Just doing the regular stuff, Battletech, Nova Drift. Um, I have kind of gone away from New World a little bit, but I need to start to get back into it because it's sort of like a, as funny as it is, it's a little bit of a relaxation thing for me. But um, aside from that, you know, just the usual things, not doing anything special. I realized when I was talking to somebody... Uh, by the way, shout out to the Average Gamer Crew. Uh, one of their guys was in uh, the arcade in Brighton last night, and I noticed that he was streaming because he was playing uh, Sega World Driving Championship, and he had a camera set up and everything else, and a headset, and you know all kinds of interesting things, and I was watching him do it, and he was pretty good at the game, actually. I was picking up pointers from him just you know sitting behind the counter watching him play although it was kind of funny um i found out that the game can be a little unforgiving if you're driving uh aggress too aggressively let's say you know if you're not you know hitting your corners at the proper speeds and your you know your corner ins are not good and your corner outs are not good and the computer control cars could catch up with you but yeah i just noticed that so you know we were standing there and we talked for a good like 20 minutes or so we were talking about chicago and california he immediately right in front of me got on his phone and once i told him about the podcast and he liked it and you know that's really cool and you know shout out to those guys because you know it's cool to see that you know in the arcade I mean, God only knows I've been trying to get Jack Danger to come and play pinball there for, like, what, three or four years, it seems. Maybe even longer than that. But he doesn't get over to this uh, neck of the woods too often, even though, from what I understand, I think his wife's family lives in Michigan. So, you know, we'll see. If they come back out here um, over the holidays, I'll see if Jack wants to come by and I'll comp him and, you know, he could just, you know, come in and play games as long as he wants because, yeah, you know, <clears throat> the arcade can always use the positive feedback, that's for sure. But anyway, that's pretty much what's going on in my world. Um, let's see, once again, checked uh, emails and voicemails and everything else and still nothing's out there. So once again... Uh, if you have any questions, thoughts, uh, comments, uh, games you would like me to cover that I haven't already covered, um, you know, any uh, critiques, as long as you're doing it in a respectful manner and not just saying, hey, dude, your podcast sucks and this is how to make it better, you know, because I'm not going to listen to that. 
uh, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there's a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Uh, social media is ongoing, as always. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. On Facebook, just do uh, Confessions of an Arcade Addict in the search bar. It'll take you right to the page. There is a discussion group that goes with that. Um, on Instagram, my screen name is at Arcade Addict Brian. On uh, Twitter, it is Arcade Addict underscore B. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So, once again, multiple ways of getting hold of the show if you're so inclined please do so. I would like the discourse. So with all that out of the way, let's get on to the rest of the show. Uh, Like I said, this is the last episode before the Chicago trip, so in about, I'd say, two weeks' time or so, maybe a little longer, um, definitely by the end of this month, by any rate, tonight is the 7th of November, um, I will be getting uh, episode 47 recorded, and I'm going to turn around and get it out as soon as possible. So anyway, let's get on with this show right now. Top 10s. Top 10s. Turn-based RPGs. Okay. Uh, being a fan of the Dungeons & Dragons game since I started playing in 1981, and... Of course, by that time, I was firmly enmeshed in my arcade addiction as well. Anytime I could find a game that fed into my two chief obsessions at the same time, I was all about. Um, There weren't a lot of turn-based RPGs that I thought were worth much in the early 80s, but as the decade went on, I found more of them, and I found out more about them as well. Uh, There were some in the early 80s on computers, but I would only hear about them until I started hanging out at my best friend's house uh, in the mid-80s, and then you started hearing and reading about them in magazines as well. When the Super, no, excuse me, when the NES came out in 85 in my area, you would start to see even more of them, like Final Fantasy. Um, But the good ones did not really start coming out until the middle to late 80s across computers and home consoles. So, before I begin, I should tell you that this top 10 is universal across all platforms. Computers, or home consoles, or the year it was released, doesn't matter. And once again, in no particular order, I just put these down as they came to mind, so here we go. Uh, First off, uh, Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord, for the Apple II, released in 1981. Um, I used to play this game over my friend Dave's house all the time after school. Of course, this was when there was a trick that you could use to make uh, a bishop, which was a class that could cast both wizard and priest spells uh, and give him, like, maximum level, which made leveling the rest of the party much, much easier. Uh, I think I got down to the eighth level in the dungeon before... Dave decided he was too cool to hang out with us anymore and went to hang with a new group of friends. (laughs) Yeah, that did happen. And if you're out there listening on some off chance, Dave, yeah, you know what you did. Um, But before that happened, we were all racing to be, be the second person in our group to defeat the Mad Overlord because we had already known Dave had beaten him a long time ago. Um, One of the best uh, turn-based RPGs for any uh, console or system. Okay, next one. Final Fantasy VII uh, for the PlayStation 1, released in 1997. Um, There really isn't too much to say about this game that has not been said already, and uh, particularly on this podcast. I still think this is the best, one of the best RPGs of all time, ranging from the actual gameplay to the soundtrack to the story. Um, like I said, I got maybe about three quarters of the way through it before I kind of gave up because in order to uh, beat the game without struggling too much, you had to go get these uh, high-level weapons and you had to defeat these uh, monsters who are also called weapons. And to do so, you had to do some major uh, hoop jumping. And I just lost interest after a while. 
I mean, I love the game, and I always will. I think it's probably the best in the actual Final Fantasy franchise, but yeah. <laughs> I actually have Final Fantasy VII on Steam, and I actually started to play it and start from scratch. Um, then I just kind of let it alone. I probably should actually go through it. You know something, when I actually start streaming, and I need to get a couple of items before I start streaming, I already have the, tw the Twitch account set up, and my computer is strong enough to do it, although I'm probably going to have to uh, use a second computer just for gameplay and my main computer for actual streaming or maybe even vice versa. That's the other thing I need to do is get a computer to, you know, take the load off my main system. Um, but anyway, um, Final Fantasy will be one of the games that I decide to stream that will be, of course multi-session because God only knows it takes a long long time to beat Final Fantasy 7 but anyway that's um that's Final Fantasy 7 on this list uh next on the hit parade uh Lufia 2 Rise of the Sinistrals released for the Super Nintendo in 1996 um this is another classic that deserves its place right along Final Fantasy um the graphics were saved for the monsters and the spell effects which were fine which was just fine by me um, I had always wished more games would do that, meaning keep the characters looking slightly better than basic and use every other bite of space on the world around the characters. You know, the towns, the dungeons, the monsters, the spells, everything. Um, the one thing that pushes this game into classic status was the ultimate side dungeon, the Ancient Cave. I talked about that when I discussed Lufia 2 a, a while back. Um, you didn't have to go into the ancient cave, but once you knew what it was all about, you found yourself going there and there again and again, either trying to get all of the iris items, or you were trying to actually beat the ancient cave, which was kind of hard. Uh, the ending of the story was at the same time great and very sad, but it was fitting to the overall arc of the story. Uh, if I remember correctly, this was the prequel to the first game that came out for the uh, Super Nintendo, which was called Lufia and the Fortress of Doom. Okay, next in line, Bard's Tale for the Commodore 64 and the PC, released in 1985. Uh, this was a game that myself and my friends Rob and Edgar were seriously into. The game was done in the style of wizardry, but it had a lot more going for it. There were cover, color graphics to go along with the fast turn-based gameplay, and the end game was really, really difficult from what I remember. There was a dungeon we always went to because it was the one place to quick level your characters, where you fought like over 300 enemies. You had to have your mass damage spells ready, and it helped to have a summoned monster or summoned dragon with a breath weapon as an ally, because if they breathed in a combat round, they could take out one quarter of the enemy just like that. Um, it was a fantastic game, and the modern-day action RPG sequel does not do it justice, and that's just my feelings on it. Okay, next in line... Uh, Shining Force for the Sega Genesis, released in 1992. This was the second game my roommate and I bonded over when we first met, the first being Street Fighter II, of course. At this point, uh, circa the summer of 1993, I was not as familiar with the Genesis games as I had been back around 1989 to 90, as I didn't know anyone who had one until I met my roommate. Uh, when she was staying at her parents' place, she would invite me over every so often, and we would play games for hours and hours, and this was one of them. Uh, I was immediately hooked because the game was a definition of the phrase simple yet effective. The graphics were decent, but the gameplay was excellent. Uh, it was a turn It's a turn-based strategy RPG like Wizard's Crown, which I will get into later, uh, but it's a bit more complex. I still play this game to this day, uh, I think I have it in a bunch of places, like on my phone, on Steam, and the Sega Classics uh, compilation for my Xbox 360. There are very few places you can't find this game if you want to, and if you're curious about it, I certainly recommend it. That's for sure. Okay, the Gold Box games. 
uh, for the Commodore 64 and PC. Release dates were 1988 through 1993. Now, I could have listed all of these individually, but they would have taken up at least seven out of the ten slots in the top ten list, which would have made this whole thing just a little too easy. Uh, SSI, which was Strategic Simulations Incorporated, if I'm not mistaken, they released these games in the following order. Uh, Pool of Radiance in 1988, Curse of the Azure Bonds in 1989, Secret of the Silver Blades, Champions of Kryn, Buck Rogers Countdown to Doomsday in 1990, Pools of Darkness, Gateway to the Savage Frontier, Death Knights of Kryn, and Neverwinter Nights for America Online in 1991. Treasures of the Savage Frontier, The Dark Queen of Kryn, Buck Rogers Matrix Cubed, Spelljammer, Pirates of Realm Space, all of those were released in 1992. And of course, the beloved Forgotten Realms Unlimited Adventures was released in 1993. Uh, I do remember being very, very excited for Pool of Radiance to come out. And when it did, I bought it immediately, and I spent hours and hours playing the game and replaying it and replaying it again, trying to remain patient until Curse of the Azure Bonds came out the following year in 1989. Um, then Secret of the Silver Blades came out in 1990. Then Buck Rogers' Countdown to Doomsday and Champions of Kryn. I had a friend of mine who had Pools of Darkness and the Dark Queen of Queen of Kryn for his MS-DOS machine, but both these games had serious bugs that made the game unplayable towards the last third of the game, if I remember correctly. Um, I didn't get into Gateway and Sa Treasures of the Savage Frontier until I got a PC years later, but it was like seeing an old friend after being away for a long time. Each of these stories were interesting and fun to play through, and I still have ambitions of making a Secret of the Silver Blades game into an actual dice and paper adventure for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you can go to uh, goodoldgames.com, that is actual GOG.com, and you can pick up the entire run for a ridiculously low price, especially when they go on sale. They have it, if I'm not mistaken, in three different um, packages. Uh, but each package is normally like, oh god, what, like $10? And when they go on sale, I've seen them as for as low as $3. So you have really no excuse if you're interested in playing these things. But let's see. Um, but yeah, don't let the, the actual primitive graphics fool you. These games are beloved classics for a reason, folks. Those who know, know. Uh, I am going to cover each of the gold box games in depth in future episodes of Are You Experienced, so stay tuned for that. Uh, next one, Wizard's Crown for the Commodore 64 and PC, released in 1986. Uh, this was the first strategy-style RPG I ever played, um, if my memory is correct. Um... This was the prototype for the gaming engine that would power the beloved Goldbox games as well. You assembled a party of eight characters and tried to find the Wizard's Crown and restore a devastated realm. Uh, I loved playing it, even though I got hung up trying to find and de defeat parties of adventurers and veteran adventurers so that I could get the really good magic items. There was also a decent crafting system, so you were motivated to go into the ruins to get as much gold as you could to augment them. Uh, this game was hours and hours of fun. Okay, next. Fantasy for the Commodore 64, released in 1985. Uh, this was the first RPG I ever played on the Commodore. Um, it was a fantastic RPG that came out in 85, and I loved it so much that I tried to recreate an actual D&D campaign world based on the game. You assembled a party of six characters from a disparate group of races and classes and tried to free the realm from the evil clutches of Nicodemus. Uh, there were two other games in this series which were pretty good, but they weren't just they just weren't as good as the original, in my opinion. Uh, let's see, honorable mentions, here we go. Uh, Tellingard, Eternal Dagger, Questron 2, Rings of Zilfin, Shard of Spring, Breath of Fire 1 and 2, Lufia and the Fortress of Doom, Fantasy 2 and 3, Lunar Silver Star Complete, Might, Might and Magic 1 and 2, Bard's Tale 2, uh, Battletech Crescent Hawks Inception, and Battlehawk Crescent Hawks Revenge. 
and those were my top tens with honorable mentions. Uh, if you have a turn-based RPG that didn't make this list and you think should get some recognition, by all means, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, with that done, let's go on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, but I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're, We're not, not too old, old for this shit. We're not, We're not too, too old for this shit. like you believe. We're, We're not too old for this shit. We're yeah. not too old for I'm this shit. I'm not gonna buy a hemorrhoid cushion. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Satan's Hollow. Okay, this is a game. I'm trying to remember why I first started playing it. I want to say Milford Wreck, but I could be wrong. It was, it was somewhere, and I can't remember right now. Um, so let's get on to the... Uh, Wikipedia description. There isn't much, so we'll just roll with it. Uh, Satan's Hollow is a fixed shooter released in arcades by Bally Midway in 1982 and subsequent, subsequently ported to the Commodore 64. The arcade uses the same fight, flight controller style joystick with a built-in trigger as Midway's Tron, which was also released in the same year. Uh, let's see, gameplay. The player must shoot flying formations of gargoyles in order to pick up pieces of a bridge that must be built over a river of lava. Once the bridge is completed, the player can cross it to face Satan. Destroying him scores bonus points based on the number of waves completed to that point and also upgrades the rocket launcher. The player then resumes the battle against the gargoyles and must start building a new longer bridge in order to fight Satan again. The sky darkens on later waves, making it harder to see the enemies. As the game progresses, gargoyles begin to throw exploding eggs, along with rocks that can destroy bridge sections. The player also occasionally faces disembodied devil heads that float around the screen and spit fire. In addition to firing rockets at the enemies, the player can use a shield that will destroy any enemy touching it. However, the shield can only be used for a short time and it must be shut down to recharge. Gargoyles will attempt sometimes to steal a ship from the player's reserve lives. Well, let's see. Uh, and we'll do the legacy real quick. Uh, Atari 8-bit family and Atari 5200 versions were completed and advertised by CBS Software but never released. The game is included in the Midway Arcade Treasures Collection, released in 2003 for the PlayStation 2, GameCube, and Xbox and in 2004 for Windows. Also, it was included in Windway Arcade Origins Collection, released in 2012 for the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360. And that's pretty much all they have. <laughs> uh, short and sweet, I guess. Okay, uh, my experiences with it. Uh, let's see, I believe the first time I played this game was either at Milford Rec or at the News Corner, but I didn't really get into it until I got the Commodore 64 version. And then again, when I discovered the wonders of emulation many years later. Uh, if you know what you're doing, you can get pretty far in the game, but you have to be really good at evasion and managing your shields, because there are some levels that will overwhelm you by sheer numbers, even if you have the maxed out firepower on your ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was one thing. I remember I went on a serious playing jag uh, when I had... Uh, when I first discovered uh, arcade emulation. But let's get on to time for some strategy because I've got a few things to say about this game and about you know how to get better at it. So here we go. Okay, time for some strategy. With this game, it's about being able to shoot your enemies and either evading their shots or using your shield to protect yourself. The shield lasts for maybe a second or two as the energy counts 
down from 15 rather quickly and it takes a little bit longer to regenerate. The first three or four waves are fairly easy, but it gets really difficult quickly from there. Uh, there are two ways to play this game. On the first level, you can shoot the enemies and build the bridge to confront Satan quickly to build up your firepower, which helps you in later levels, or you can stack the levels for more points, because when you do defeat Satan, you get a bonus of 1,000 points per level you beat prior to facing him. You can upgrade your firepower twice, which again helps when the screen is filled with enemies, but in the later levels, there are so many and they throw so much and different kinds of firepower at you, you should try to evade these levels by crossing the bridge. Every second or third screen is a demon head that shoots a stream of fire at you, and it moves in a pattern across the screen. As you beat more levels, it moves faster and spits fire at you quicker, and it lasts for a longer time. Um, each time you confront Satan, he moves and shoots faster, and has more weapons at his disposal as well. I love this game. But my criticism of it, it gets too unforgiving way too fast. Yeah, uh, you have to be an absolute master at managing your shields while moving and shooting because the enemies become absolutely relentless. I mean, it's hard to describe, but learning how to move through the levels of this game is one of the keys to mastering it, and that's not an easy thing to do. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I love the game, but yeah, it can certainly give you agita if you let it that's the truth okay and that's uh our experience in time for some tragedy uh you have any tactics or tips about this game get a hold of me because i want to know about it arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com okay and we are going to go into i believe the last segment of this uh podcast which is arcade review Station Arcade, Orlando, Florida. Okay, as I've said before, I have five criteria when I'm reviewing an arcade. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, and value. Uh, location, pretty straightforward. Is it easy to get to? Uh, is it easy to find? Is there ample parking? Things like that. Selection, how many games do they have? Do they have a really good cross-section? Do they focus on one particular era of gaming, or are they more widespread? Uh, let's see, ambiance. Uh, other things to draw the eye or uh, please the ear aside from the games themselves. You know, do they have artwork, back glasses? Is there music playing? Um, is the staff friendly and helpful? Uh, things like that. Uh, functionality, pretty straightforward. Do the machines work? Do they work well? Uh, do they look like five miles of bad road? Or do you know? Or do they look pristine? Or do they play bad? You know, I've seen such games in my travels. Um, you know, do if a game is down for repair, how long does it take to get fixed? And so on and so forth. And of course, value. Uh, do the games run on quarters? Uh, is this a free play arcade? Uh, do they run on tokens? There are still some places that run on tokens, you know, which is kind of cool. And so those are my five criteria. They're rated one to ten with half points coming into play. Um, you take those five, you know, ratings, add them together, average them out by five, and you come up with a total score. So let's get right to it. Okay, uh, location, 8.5. Uh, Church Street Station was located just west of Orange Avenue, which was one of the main drags running north and south through downtown Orlando. To my pleasant surprise, they now have a light rail line going through Orlando, connecting the town of DeBerry to the north with Kissimmee to the south. 
Uh, back when I lived there, there was a route line that went north-south through town, but I think that was mostly for freight trains and Amtrak. Um, there was a lot of debate at the time about installing a light rail line through town, but I never thought they'd go through with it. <laughs> God only knows, there was so much debate about it. In any case, Orlando's transit system was pretty decent, and the bus station was only a couple of blocks north of the station. Uh, Interstate 4 runs only a block to the west through town. Uh, Colonial Drive and Orange Blossom Trail are not too far away, so of course, that level of accessibility earns high marks. Uh, selection, 8.0. Uh, from what I can remember, the arcade at the top of the station had a great selection, ranging from the classics like Miss Pac-Man and Galaga, to the cutting-edge machines like Marvel vs. Capcom 2, Street Fighter 3, and Run and Gun 2. They also had some redemption machines and a massive four-player Galaxian machine imported from Japan. I think they had about 30 to 40 machines in total. Uh, Ambiance, 6.5. Um, if memory f serves, I think they had an actual jukebox in the place. At any rate, there was always music going. Uh, what was rather quirky was that you had to climb stairs or up onto raised platforms to uh, access some of the machines staff was about average when it came to addressing issues and there was a little bit of video game art to look at as well not a lot but some uh, functionality 6.0 the machines were in good condition it worked fairly well though I do remember if a machine went down it took a long long time for it to get fixed something close to a month and finally value I give a straight five uh, the arcade ran on quarters so average value marks here uh, games that should have cost a quarter to play did, and the newer games cost 50 cents. Nothing out of the ordinary to the positive or the negative. So you add all those together, average it out by 5, and you get a final score of 6.8. Uh, this was a nice place to spend a couple of hours during the day or on the weekend. My roommate and I came here to play Marvel vs. Capcom 2, and as I said in Arcade Review, I used to spend my lunch breaks here when I worked at the courthouse. Uh, it was a shame that this place closed down in the late 90s, but after my brief revisit to Orlando in 2010, coupled with numerous businesses I saw that have come back to the downtown area when I was looking at Google Maps, it seems Orlando has come back a bit. But yeah, they still need an arcade down there. Just saying. <laughs> you know, every, every town is better if they've got an ar actual arcade in it, but that's just me. Well, you know. You know I would say stuff like that. But anyway, uh, so that's the arcade review for Church Street Station. Um, if you lived in the Orlando area back in the day, and you went to Church Street, and, you know, you listen, hey, tell me what you know about it, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. And actually, I lied. We have an on-the-road segment. So, once again, get in, sit down, buckle up, shut up, and hang on. folks Brian here and this is another edition of on the road uh, it's Saturday February 22nd closing in on 6 p.m. I just left the arcade in Brighton and after a quick run to the store which is right down the street I'm heading home I kind of surprised myself today I mean um, how should I put this? Well, I just, I was originally going to go to this place called, um, Player One in, uh, Auburn Hills, Michigan after I got out of work this afternoon, but I knew nothing about the place, so I decided to check some Google reviews of it, and what I was reading was not encouraging at all, and considering that Auburn Hills is about I want to say a 45 minute drive from where I work, much less from home. It's almost like an hour and 20 minutes to get over there. 
um, I decided just not to go with it. Um, I was thinking about going down to Ready Player One, but I just did not feel like doing it. I just wasn't feeling it today. So I compromised. <laughs> I just decided to get on the highway, Interstate 96 westbound from where I work and go to the arcade Brighton. And it was a pretty good day at the arcade for me. Although I'm a little frustrated by it, but only one aspect of it. Um, to explain, um, when I walked in, I immediately played a game of Time Pilot, and I started out great. I got through 19, you know, 19, what was it, 1918? It was 1918 or something like that, then 1940, then 1972, and then once I got to 1983, that's when the wheels started coming off. I mean, I had I had not lost a life up until um, 1983 when the jet fighters come out, and you know I just I lost actually I lost one life going no actually I take that back I lost all my lives almost all my lives in 1983 except for two I had five when I got to 2001 and. I am so out of practice with this game, it's not even funny, but I still put up, like, what, 144,000 or something like that, which is not bad, but, you know, I'm capable of better. It's just that I just don't play, I don't get to get to the arcade to play, and I need to start playing an emulation again, you know, to kind of get my groove back a little bit. So, I was like, uh, <laughs> I was a touch discouraged, so I walked over to the 2084 machine um for those who don't know uh that is a re a recreation of robotron 2084 same exact game except there's an lcd screen in it instead of a cathode ray tube like a, like there always has been um the art and you know the side art and the panel art and the bezel art the bezel art is completely different it's just 2084 it doesn't even say robotron on it but so i played that and i just wasn't getting very far i would get to stage 9 stage 12 stage 13 stage 14 but you know my scores were like 250,000 300,000 somewhere close to there and i just wasn't i just didn't feel it and usually when i'm in the zone on robotron where i can get those scores where I'm flirting with a million points, um, you know, I'm just sort of, sort of zen. I just felt too anxious, you know. I, at one point, I've, after losing a life, I really just tried to just kind of relax and flow with the game, and you know, just be in that state. And I just could not. I just could not get there. And I played their original Robotron machine, and I did know better there. Even though that machine is a little bit, little easier to play. I think the 2084 machine's a little beat up now. You know, because I can tell a major difference between that machine and the original Robotron machine, which is like three machines down from it. Um, it's just, the controls are just, they're a little too loose in 2084, and they're not quite so loose in, you know, in the Robotron machine. So I just decided, okay, I don't have it for this game today. So I'm just going to play Star Wars just for the hell of it. And I got my all-time high score in Star Wars. <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know what else, I don't know what I was thinking or feeling when I was playing it, but I was just... I was just on a roll. I mean, my all-time high score up until that point was like a million five. And I got almost a million eight. And I'm very, very pleased with that. I mean, considering when I used to go to the arcade Brighton and I would play Star Wars and I would not get past like level seven, you know, or level eight. Uh, I got to what, level 10? No, not level 10. Level, yeah, it's level uh, 11, I think. 
and I did very well, and I put my high score, I put my initials up, took a picture, put it on Instagram, and moved right along. <laughs> That's what I did, for sure. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, I got my all-time high score on that Hyper Miz Pac-Man, and I put that picture up. That was, what, 848,000? You know, I blew my old high score out of the water. And I did most of it while there was a, uh, like, there was a, oh, God, how old was he? He had to be, like, eight or nine years old. And my son, Marcus, was only slightly smaller than him, and he's five. Um, you know, he was playing Pac-Man next to me, and he wasn't getting it, and I was trying to give him some pointers. And, you know, he was, you know, he just was messing around. He didn't really care. But he was asking me, he was telling me that Ms. Pac-Man, you know, Pac-Man's harder than Ms. Pac-Man. I'm like, nope. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> you know, got into a bit of a debate debate with a nine-year-old. But, yeah, so. And after that, you know, I went from game to game. You know, played a little pinball. Um, just more or less just, you know sort of, you know, decompressed. I had had some fun. I mean, I wasn't doing anything with, like, any major seriousness, you know, except for Robotron, which I could just couldn't believe that I couldn't get past certain levels when the last time I did it, I could get past those levels with ease. But that's what kind of, aside from the arcade run, that's kind of what led me to That's what led me to um, record this segment. You know, the whole use it or lose it thing. You know, that's uh, that's a, a phrase that started probably in the '60s, maybe maybe the '50s, but I'm pretty sure it was the '60s. And you know, when it comes to video gaming, yeah, you have to constantly be playing. I mean. The only games I've been playing are Battletech and Nova Drift, which is this really, really interesting shooter. Um, it's sort of like Battle, not Battletech, uh, Asteroids meets uh, Asteroids meets Asteroids Deluxe meets Reactor or. I can't remember what that game is from Sega where you had this this base that was made of like all solid rock and you couldn't destroy it, but there was like one thin little uh, thin little groove that you could shoot in and you know to destroy the base and then you would go on and you know all stuff um, all of the uh, enemies shoot at you but their shots don't destroy you. They just send you flying in a particular direction. I think the only thing that can kill you is that base by running into it. And sometimes they try to push you into the base. But yeah, it's that. Then you add a little bullet hell on top of it. And yeah, it's a very interesting game. And I've only scratched the surface with that game. I mean, it is, it's fun, but it can be really hard. Uh, Nova Drift ha also has uh, the, you can select power-ups for your ship. You know, you have one, you can select a certain type of firepower you like, a certain type of shielding that you like, and a certain type of uh, uh, fighter craft. Because there's one that's the engineer where you can actually build drones and um, allies faster, and you can build more of them. Um, there's one that is like really fast. Then there's another one where you can basically ram, you know, use it to ram other ships and inflict a lot of damage. Um, yeah, it, I love Nova, Nova Drift. It's, it's a great game. I mean, whoever, who, whatever team programmed this game, they knew the classics and they incorporated it. I mean, I mean, there's Star Castle in there. Um, 
you know, Star Castle. I would say even Centipede is in, in there in like this uh, multi-directional shooter. I mean, the, the number of influences this game has taken from, it's pretty long. And it's also done in an original way. I mean, there's even, like, you can even, like, say, there's a little Defender in there also, or a little Stargate, too. Oh, speaking of that, <laughs> you know, I played Stargate for, like, the first time uh, in a long time, and I only got, like, 25,000, because I decided to play it straight up rather than um, use the uh, rescuing four humans and flying into the Stargate to warp ahead to level five. I went to do it and I screwed up, so I just said, fine, I'll just play it straight up. And yeah, I'm so far out of practice on that game, it's not even funny. I mean, I used to be able to put up 150,000, 200,000, you know, without too much trouble. It all depended on whether I could get, um, if I could get the, uh, what's the name, the, um, if I could do the, the level warp trick twice to send me to level 10. You know, because that's how you get, you got a huge bonus for each surviving human once you warped to uh, warp five levels ahead. So that was that was interesting. I mean, it's one of those games where yeah, I've got to play that game and play it a lot to even get even relatively close to how I was. And yeah, like I said, you know, I just wasn't quite feeling it, even though I did so well in a couple of games, I was actually thinking about, hmm, I could probably make two million on Star Wars. Then of course, you know, yeah, I mess up in the trench run on level uh, 12. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I love Star Wars. It's one of my favorite all-time arcade games. You know, I could say it's probably number one, but you know, in my heart of hearts, we all, I know that Galaga's number one. Galaga's always been number one since 1981. There have been games that I've played more and more in depth and gotten really, really good at, like, say, like, Street Fighter 2, you know, and its various iterations, but, yeah, I mean, if you put me in a chair and put the spotlight on me and put a gun, and held a gun to my head and told me... Pick your, pick your favorite all-time arcade game, it would have to be Galaga. Um, speaking of that, I didn't even bother playing Galaga. I was like, I'd be, uh, I've already straight nine that, that machine. I don't need, I don't need to do anything else. Um, I played Asteroids it, for the first time in a long time, speaking of Nova Drift, and it's one of its main, major influences. I mean, yeah, it, not to mention, yeah, Sinistar is another influence of uh, Nova Drift. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, the way they did certain things and the way they did enemies and things like that. Yeah, I mean, you could pull it from, like, a whole lot of different sources, and then on top of that, there's a lot of originality that goes along with it. So, yeah, I played Asteroids, and I got a respectable 37,000. You know, I haven't played... You know, the last time I played Asteroids with any series was in the arcade in Brighton. And that was, oh goodness, I want to say like mm, probably like four months ago. Where I got like, I think, what, 51,000 or something like that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I played, you know, I was very proud of myself. I was playing uh, Frenzy. I didn't do too great there. I think I got like 6,500. Usually I'm good for like, you know, 10 to 12,000. But yeah, I was, like I said, I don't know why I had had it with certain games that day or this day, and I didn't even come close to having it with others. It was weird, but it's okay. You know, my whole thing is, is that, yeah, now that I'm starting to have just a little bit of financial wiggle room, just a skosh, just a just a touch, where everything is not like a matter of life and death, and having to scrimp and save and make sure that all the bills get paid, and you know there's food in the cupboard and so forth and so on. Where I've got just a little bit of money to to 
mess around with. Um, you know, I think I'm going to start going to the arcade in Brighton at least once a month. At the very least once a month. Maybe even once every two weeks, depending on, you know, the home situation and so forth. But, yeah, I mean... I was seeing, you know, kids of like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old in there. You know, there are plenty of the big, huge sit-down games, you know, for them to play like Transformers and House of the Dead and Jurassic Park and the Star Wars Battle Pod. I should have played that before I left. Darn it. Oh, well. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of kids in that place. And it's, it immediately makes me think when I see kids, you know, running around and playing games and, you know, having fun with, you know, with, you know, with the game and their friends and that kind of stuff. It makes me wonder, you know, when do I start bringing my son Marcus to the arcade in Brighton? Um, I'm thinking it's probably going to be at least another couple of years. Uh, we have to sort out... Uh, things with his autism first. Um, and hopefully that gets done within the next six months or so. But those are my thoughts. That's my arcade run from uh, the Arcade Brighton. I originally was going to go to either Auburn Hills or Detroit. But, you know, I just, after reading reviews of these places and, you know, the majority of them were negative experiences, yeah, I'm going to hold off. Um, there are other places, but there are some that are way out the sticks, and, you know, I got to make sure that, you know, I've got my ducks in a row before I go out there, because, you know, I would have to make a day of it after I get out of work. I mean, fortunately, my, my work shift on Saturday is really, really light, and, you know, I can just you know, pop over here or pop over there and just, you know, see what's going on or, you know, play some games and, you know, blow off a little steam, that kind of thing. That's what I use my arcade, run, my arcade runs for, you know, blow off steam, have some fun, let the inner 12-year-old run around and have some fun. And usually I feel a little better when I leave. But anyway, enough of me rambling. Uh, this is Brian saying have fun out there. Good gaming, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.